The 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party of China is still in session in Beijing. Today we'll be talking about the leadership and its political orientation at the Congress in an international political environment that's increasingly complex and dangerous. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking once again with Tings Chak. Tings is a researcher at the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research. She's a member of the Dongsheng News Collective and she's the author of the pamphlet, Serve the People, the Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Tings Chak, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brian. Great pleasure. Tings, this is a major event in China. It happens every five years. The new leadership or the old leadership, if it's reelected, is, is selected or elected once again. The party gets an opportunity to identify the key problems, challenges facing the party, facing the country. The Communist Party of China has been the ruling party since 1949, a consequence of a 27-year-long civil war that started in the 1920s, ended in 1949. China since 1949 has completely shifted, changed and impacted not only the people in China, but the global political environment. When you look at this party Congress, which is still in session, and there will be important decisions that will be made later, so we don't know the final outcome, what's your big takeaway? So I think it's a great question. Of course, as you highlighted, it's already still in session until Saturday. And so we're waiting with our, for the results. But I think one of the things that is clear is from, you know, what we can draw from the report that President Xi Jinping gave to kick off the Congress on Sunday. And of course, this is not his own report, but a report on behalf of the outgoing 19th National Congress, which took over a year to prepare. And so really every word counts. So I would say that there's a couple of takeaways and it really is in the details. And I, I think it helps indicate some of the direction that the country has been going in since Xi Jinping came into power at the 18th National Congress, uh, look back onto what has happened and also where we're heading in the future. And I would say the first word, and I, I went into the details today, is looking at modernization. And this word was actually used 33 times, I think probably more than any other concept, maybe just more than Marxism. And I counted, it was 30 times. But I think the question of what kind of modernization and throughout means, you know, and this Congress and in the report already showed a strong statement around distinguishing a path of modernization from the Western capitalist modernization. And so it's often repeated one that is socialist and one that is Chinese. And in this particular report, there were five characteristics that she laid out, which is the Chinese path to modernization, looking at the fact that it has a massive population, the question of how do we achieve common prosperity, how do we uplift the, both the material and the cultural advancement of the people, this question of balance between humanity and nature, 
and then peaceful development. And I just want to pull one thing that I think was really important is that in the process of pursuing the Chinese path of modernization, and I'm quoting here, he says that China will not tread the old path of war, colonization, and plunder taken in some countries, that brutal and bloodstained path of enrichment at the expense of others caused great suffering for the people of developing countries. So here, I think it's a quite a strong statement around, you know, affirming the fact that people of the third world of the global south shouldn't necessarily be condemned to a history of, you know, underdevelopment of poverty, but have a possibility of crafting its own path towards modernization and one that has, you know, a path to national sovereignty. So I think the first one is really about this question of a socialist Chinese modernization. And the second, I think, is I was counting a lot of words, is there's a lot less market and a lot more people. And you can see that, you know, and account into comparing the last, you know, Congresses. She mentioned market 18 times in the speech, which was half of what Hu Jintao mentioned 10 years ago, and which was a third of what Jiang Jiemin mentioned 20 years ago. So in a way, we're looking at, you know, through the decades, a more focus, less on the market. And what we're seeing instead of that is a lot of emphasis on people-centered, people-centered development, people-centered philosophy. And I think this is something that it's very subtle in the words, but it's a shift towards a more economic-centered strategy, really that period of, you know, developing the productive forces quickly to now this new era under Xi Jinping towards focusing on the people and a variety of other measures on that. Well, that's interesting. And I want to help frame this issue of the usage of particular words for everyone, because people unfamiliar with this may not be sort of aware of the nuance or the subtlety or the subtlety that at least we think we're, we're observing. China had a, a socialist revolution led by a communist party in 1949, as I mentioned in the beginning. And for the first decades, pursued a policy that did not include the facilitation or promotion of a private market, meaning using capitalist property relations as a stimulus for economic development. It was more or less a largely publicly owned economy with social planning. And then there was the opening up reforms in the late 1970s. And so China developed as a conscious intentional act, a hybrid economic model that included foreign direct investment from capitalist corporations, the allowance of privatization of some parts of the economy inside of China, meaning allowing a capitalist class, business owners, entrepreneurs to develop, and at the same time maintained a strong state sector, both state-owned enterprises and in the way planning and credit allocation took place such that the state really was still directing the economy big picture, even though there was a market. So what you're suggesting is that by Xi Jinping mentioning the market many fewer times than the, a decade ago, the previous leadership or the leadership before that, that the emphasis is changing. It's not an abandonment of the other model, this hybrid mixed economy model, but in terms of emphasis being more on the socialist sector. And I want to ask you about that because Xi Jinping, in, right in the beginning of his speech, he's going out of his way to reaffirm Marxism, Marxism-Leninism, reaffirm the founding principles and the founding values of the party, reaffirming Mao Zedong thought. I mean, these are, you know, within the context of Chinese, the usage of words, these all have a very significant meaning. Go ahead. 
Yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that historical context is important to understand. You know, when Deng Xiaoping came into power, you know, in the late 1970s, there's a recognition that the country was highly underdeveloped still, you know, and that there needed to be a shift in the direction. And that required an access to the capital, especially foreign capital and direct investment, as you mentioned, but also the technology, the know-how and the education. So that was a process of the opening up reform period that we've seen really that marked the last 40 years. And in that period actually was a decision taken by the CPC to shift from the focus on, you know, class struggle, the main struggle against the bourgeoisie, between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, to one of really thinking about developing the productive forces, how to, you know, create the material conditions so that China could be on a stronger footing. So now in this, what we call the new era under Xi, is a shift away in some ways of this economic-centered strategy that marked the opening up reform period and towards something that is now being framed as a people-centered modernization. That is a phrase that has entered in the Xi period. Let me ask you about COVID-19. Xi Jinping, in his work report in the opening, talks about COVID-19. Do you detect any shift? Of course, in the West, where I am, I'm in the United States, I'm in New York City. In addition to the endless demonization of Xi Jinping, Every time you read an article or a headline in the Western media about China and about this Congress, it's always the authoritarian Xi Jinping, the authoritarian this, the authoritarian that. I mean, it's nonstop demonization. But one of the big points of speculation in the Western media is, will China move away from its zero COVID policy? What is What did Xi say? I mean, I think this is one of the outcomes we're waiting to hear more about in terms of what is an assessment of the COVID policy and then also what is the direction moving forward. I think in the report, it's not enough for us to get a sense of, you know, my personal thoughts are the the zero COVID strategy is the strategy of the government, but in terms of how it will be implemented or it's a, basically, a, I would say, a a strategy that's taken on many different forms since the beginning of the pandemic when it broke out in 2019. So we don't know exactly yet what will come with the COVID policy. The speech by Xi Jinping is has many sort of phrases, not many, but they're certainly emphasized that China and the Chinese people have to prepare for a stormy period. And of course, we know here in the United States, the U.S. reoriented its military and foreign policy in 2018 and is preparing the country militarily, politically, propagandistically, in all ways for major power conflict, meaning first and foremost with, with China. Anyway, Stormy, he's saying we have to prepare, we have to safeguard our independence, we have to safeguard our revolution, we won't be deterred, we will with confidence succeed, but it's clearly, it has the sense of a party or a country preparing for conflict. I mean, I think it's important to understand that in the last few years, you know, there's been, especially with the rising escalations of recent months, there's a worry that, oh, this will turn into a war or at least a hot war. But at the same time, I think there's a recognition that this this conflict has already begun in terms of, you know, hybrid warfare. We've we've seen it for the last few years in the form of economic sanctions, media disinformation, the kind of long-arm jurisdiction, interference in the internal affairs of the country. And we're seeing that escalating, especially on the technological front, you know, the U.S. policy of sort of 
so-called choke points with a semiconductor part, which is something that China is still significantly behind the U.S. on. And so I think in the report, you do see a lot of emphasis on security, on defense, around uh, strengthening a national unity and being prepared for what he called exactly worst case scenarios to be able to withstand I think, heavy winds, choppy waters, and dangerous storms. But I think it's important to mention that these aggressions have already been escalating and felt by the people here. And it's not something that will start to happen, but it's something that has already begun. Yeah. I'm going to read to you a little bit from Xi's speech. In response to separatist activities aimed at, quote, Taiwan independence, close quote, and gross provocations of external interference in Taiwan affairs, we have resolutely fought against separatism and countered interference, demonstrating our resolve and ability to safeguard China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and to oppose, quote, Taiwan independence, again, always using independence in quotes. We have strengthened our strategic initiative for China's complete reunification and consolidated commitment to the one China principle within the international community. In one way, Tings, you would think this would be an unnecessary set of words because the United States in 1972 in the Shanghai communique signed by Nixon and Kissinger and Mao and Zhou Enlai, the U.S. acknowledged that Taiwan is indeed part of China and that the status of Taiwan ultimately will be determined by the people on both sides of the Taiwan Straits, meaning Chinese people. And the fact that here we are 50 years later in 2022, and Xi Jinping in the early part of his speech has to talk about provocations and the determination to break Taiwan away and that it will never happen and that the country has complete resolve. I mean, Obviously, Taiwan will or is being a flashpoint, not because China is moving aggressively. I mean, when you look at what the relations are between China and Taiwan, they've been economic relations over the past couple decades. They've been peaceful. But suddenly the specter of possible war over Taiwan, and it's just again for our audience, say for people tuning in for the first time to this show, who might think like, why is Taiwan such a big deal? And of course, Taiwan is, in fact, central to U.S.-China relations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important, and we had a nice conversation the last time I was on the show about the Taiwan question, is the fact that this process of reunification has always been, you know, the aspiration of the Chinese people and since the founding of the People's Republic of China. But at the same time, and in a later part in the speech, he talks about how the wheels of history are rolling on towards China's reunification and rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. I mean, I think it's important to know that this, as you've rightly mentioned, this process of pushing forward these wheels of history in some ways have actually been egged on or provoked by these U.S. aggressions, you know, uh, of course, most highlighted by Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island, which is in direct contravention of all the international agreements and bilateral agreements and sort of the rules of the game. So I think it's important to say that China's actually been acting on a relatively measured way in light of the fact that U.S. has completely exactly worked against the rules of the game that have been determined since 1972 between the two countries. But so there was a very strong, I think, emphasis on reiterating what is already known 
that the Taiwan question is a matter for the Chinese people on both sides of the straits. And I think it's also important, I mean, she mentioned in there that the strive for peaceful reunification is going to be done with the greatest sincerity and effort because no one actually wants to see a military conflict. But the fact is, the renouncing of force is, and I'm quoting here, we will never renounce the use of force if necessary, only directed at these attempts at interference. We're talking about foreign interference in internal affairs and at certain sectors that are promoting a separatist agenda. Tings, there's a, another important part of the speech where Xi Jinping talks about China's economic growth. He mentions the fact that in the last decade, since he became head of state, the Chinese economy's share of world production has grown about seven and a half percent, that it's almost 18 percent of world production of goods and services. 18 percent. That's huge. Almost one fifth. When you think back to 1945, at the end of World War II, the United States, with a population of four or five percent, had 50 percent of the world's production of goods and services. This was an enormous privilege and a demonstration of economic power, not to mention the fact that the United States also at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 insisted and succeeded on making the U.S. dollar the world reserve currency. And the U.S. dollar, other countries had to buy it to use it for trade, but the U.S. could just print it. So the U.S. had this huge advantage. Now, China has grown economically, and Xi Jinping's statistical sort of account demonstrates that. China is not trying to challenge U.S. dominance. It's not trying to become a replacement hegemon. There's nothing in China's foreign policy that would indicate that. And yet the United States treats China's economic rise as an existential threat. And right before the Congress, I mean, and I don't think the timing is a coincidence, Joe Biden, President Biden, announced that the United States was going to basically embargo, blockade, prevent, make illegal the selling of anything from U.S. technology companies to high-tech companies in China regarding chip development. And of course, the U.S. has an advantage in chips, and chips are central to a high-tech economy. This is a real act of economic aggression provoked really not because China is doing anything other than growing. I mean, I think it's absolutely correct. We've seen an escalation, a dramatic escalation of this technological war, you know, the so-called policy and the choke points of accessing semiconductors, knowing that that is a weakness for China or where a technology where it's behind the U.S. But at the same time, we've been seeing, I think, what you're referring to this this new McCarthyism that's really quite shocking, not only targeting people within the United States, whether they have a Chinese nationality or of Chinese descent, but also now people with U.S. citizenship working in Chinese companies. You know, there's a kind of threat that they have to stop working for these tech companies or potentially lose their citizenship. So this is a massive escalation. And I think we can see this as a sort of weakness that the U.S. or a sort of fragility it's experiencing this moment that it's resorting to these kinds of tactics it knows best. And I think it's important you mentioned this loss of productive capacity, but also in terms of its stature in relation to the rest of the world. When we look back, you know, 20 years ago, 80% of the world's countries traded with the U.S. as their primary trading partner. 
20 years down the line, that has completely shifted to China. And so that lost productive capacity has also translated into the loss of sort of that relationship, that trading power with the rest of the world. And I think we're also seeing this in terms of what it has to offer the rest of the world. You know, these kinds of initiatives like the Bring Back Better World as a way to contest the China's Belt and Road Initiative. But we, we're seeing a lot of talk, but at the same time, not a lot of action, because I think of the, the U.S. has actually lost a lot of its ability to produce, but also deliver on these kinds of international development projects. Yes. When you think about the U.S., you know, 70,000 bridges, Tings, according to the engineers who are, you know, the bridge engineers in America, the association, I can't remember its exact name, 70,000 of them, according to the engineers, need repair. Some of them need massive repair, and some of them, many of them need to be replaced. That's a sign that the U.S. isn't paying attention to infrastructure. It is paying attention every year to the production of more and more excellent nuclear weapons and cruise missiles and aircraft carriers and battleship groups. The U.S. spends almost a trillion dollars a year, almost a trillion, maybe even a little bit more than a trillion when you look into the different departments outside the Department of Defense where military spending is really going on. A trillion a year for basically death and destruction for the U.S. military. And we don't have any high-speed trains in the United States. I know you're laughing because you're in China. I mean, let's just talk for the people who have never visited China, like some of the technological progress that China has made during the same decade or two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the, the big factors. It's been able to develop, for example, the, the largest high-speed train network in the world. And, you know, I can attest it's one of the most comfortable ways of traveling ever. It's it's beautiful. And I mean, it's also one of the factors of how, in a way, China has been able to recover more quickly than a lot of the countries out of this COVID moment. You know, there's been a kind of, I think, a lot of questions of how, how did China manage when the rest of the world has not been able to recover economic growth? Of course, China's in a tough moment in many senses. You know, consumption is way below pre-pandemic levels. There's a question of youth unemployment. But a big question is this investment into infrastructure and investment into the productive capacity that links back to your other question, you know? And that was part of, I think, the China's growth. And also, I think the whole Global South's economic rise that was paralleled to the moment when the North, the West, was relatively stagnating. And this transformation in China of its productive capacity has turned it into, you know, this actually when you look at manufacturing, it accounts for a third of the global manufacturing. And I think that 18% is more around goods and services, production and services. And so you see that as a big part of driver of economic stability, of economic development, but also a huge part of the poverty alleviation initiatives, a big part being able to uplift these 800 million people out of extreme poverty, especially in the countryside, is through the investment into infrastructure, making sure that the roads, the railways, the internet, the electricity can be built and reach the most remote part of this massive country. And then there we can add in other elements like private capital investments from other sectors that isn't the state to come in and bring in, in other forms of investment and capital. So that has been a big part of the whole poverty alleviation process is in this investment in infrastructure. It's quite shocking, astonishing, amazing, find the right adjective when you think 
850 million people coming out of extreme poverty as an intentional plan, as part of a massive anti-poverty program and something you've written about. And I'll mention your, your book again before we end so that people can get the book. But, you know, that's double the size, more than double the size of the U.S. population. We have 330 million people in the United States. So here you have a country that has taken 800 million people out of extreme poverty who are making less than, I think, the Chinese standard for extreme poverty was a little bit different from the world standard, but it was something like $2.3 a day, which is really extreme poverty. And bringing people out of that extreme poverty and at the same time building all of this infrastructure, and again, the two go together, but my point is it wasn't only carrying out an anti-poverty program, it was also creating this technological infrastructure and the number of people going to college, the number of people graduating, the increase in life expectancy, not just for those in extreme poverty, but for all of society. I mean, when you look at a form of governance, and the point of our, of our show as the socialist program is not to make socialist governments look like, you know, the greatest things than sliced bread, the heaven on earth. We're not trying to approach the world with rose-colored glasses or an idealist conception about how politics work, even in a post-capitalist society or a society trying to transition to socialism. But the achievements, when you look at it in its totality, and even with all of the problems, it's an incredibly important success story. I mean, I think it's actually no doubt about that. I think one another aspect, though, to not just focus on sort of the rosy parts of it, is that this poverty campaign and the achievements achieved in that um, was also addressing some of the problems that were existing. You know, that the vast majority of the country had been able to be lifted to middle class, but there were still many people that hadn't been. And there was large amounts and still is large amounts of inequality. There was a difference between the countryside and the cities, between the West and the East. So it was addressing all those issues. And in fact, in the report, Xi Jinping talks about, you know, some of these problems and severe issues that had emerged, especially through the opening up reform period that needed to be addressed. So in terms of uplifting poverty was also recognition of some of these problems that had existed or ex been exacerbated during that period. But then there's another aspect I think that is really important in terms of party building is the question of what it, it did to consolidate the party, bring party members back in touch with the grassroots, uh, especially in the countryside. You know, one of the first things that Xi Jinping did when he came into power is that he did two things. He issued once a list of what they're called eight measures on austerity. And so it was a hard look at some of the practices in the party that had, you know, around bureaucracy, around hedonism, around a kind of extravagance that had overtaken parts of the party. And part of it was looking at, okay, these are the eight measures on how to be more austere in terms of less extravagance, less grand receptions, less talk and more doing. And then also a reigniting of this idea of the mass line. And so he, the second thing he did was creating a mass line campaign to sort of remove this level of detachment that was had existed for some period, especially in the reform period, between the party and the people. 
And so when we look at this poverty campaign, it was also part of rebuilding the party or strengthening the party, reconnecting the party with the people. And so I think it, in a way it addresses or looks straight on some of these problems that had emerged in the last four decades. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I want to actually go to Xi's speech because one thing about the speech is it's, it's very forthcoming. Again, people getting their news from the Western media, they'll just see like negative headlines. But what China is saying and what the work report says and what Xi is saying, which is not just his thoughts. I mean, obviously the work report is a collective product that many, many people participated in because each word, recognizing that each word will be you know, analyzed, each word is carefully measured. I want to read a little bit about what he says about just what you're talking about. Great achievements had been secured in reform, opening up in socialist modernization, and notable advances had been made in the great new projects of party building. All this created solid foundations, favorable conditions, and key underpinnings of our continued progress. He's talking about before. At the same time, however, a number of prominent issues and problems some of which had been building for years and others which were just emerging, demanded urgent action. He's talking about the last 10 years of his leadership. Inside the party, there were many issues with respect to upholding the party's leadership, including a lack of clear understanding and effective action, as well as the slide towards weak, hollow, and watered-down party leadership and practice. Some party members and officials were wavering in their political conviction, despite repeated warnings, pointless formalities, bureaucratism, hedonism, and extravagance persisted in some localities and department. Privilege-seeking mindsets and practices posed a serious problem, and some deeply shocking cases of corruption had been uncovered. And then he goes on to talk about other problems. He doesn't stop there. He's really spends quite a bit of time in the speech talking about these are real problems, real weaknesses, not just of society in general, but of the Communist Party and of its leadership. And not just that, also the problems of unbalanced economic growth, how it led to inequality, economic growth that was economic growth such that it actually helped deteriorate the economy and the environment. And then he talks about these are the things that we have tried to address. We've identified them, we've spoken openly about them, and we've taken concrete, practical, resolute action to address them. And I think that's really important for people to evaluate G's leadership over the last decade, that this isn't just talk, that it's not just rhetoric, that there have been profound transformations and reforms within the reforms. He's saying basically the reforms were a good idea, but they also created many, many problems and we've identified them and we're dealing with them. I thought that was like a really important part of this presentation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important because we're looking at, you know, these reports are a way of looking back at the work and assessment, you know, a self-assessment as a critical assessment. And I want to just point back to the sort of handover speech by Hu Jintao in the last, in 2012. And in that speech, he mentioned corruption 16 times. There was an important line he said, he says, if we fail to address corruption, it could prove fatal to the party and even cause the collapse of the party and the fall of the state. These are extremely strong words. 
And I'm just using corruption as one of the, I think, the key examples of sort of strong action that's been taken. And then in Xi's inaugural speech, his first speech as the general secretary of the CPC, that's when he made that famous line about he's going to go after not only the flies, but also the tigers. So looking at corruption from the grassroots level all the way up. And one of the, you know, things that we've been seeing is that in the last 10 years, over 2 million party members were investigated, including 800,000 that were actually expelled. But when we're talking about the tigers, 43 central committee members and six Politburo members, and this includes, you know, foreign ministers, provincial governors, you know, presidents of the major banks have been processed and tried and investigated in corruption scandals. So this is this is looking at one of the core examples. And, you know, I know that in the West, a lot of the media likes to to look at the anti-corruption campaign as some kind of sort of demonic campaign to secure his own personal power. But I think maybe perhaps, I don't know, maybe the West, it's such a foreign concept to actually battle corruption in a real holistic way. But if you ask any Chinese person on, on the street or anywhere else, it probably is single-handedly the most important work that has gained the confidence of the people to say you have put you know, this as a priority. You said it 10 years ago and you've now have something to show for it 10 years later. Very important. You know, in the, in the United States or in Western capitalist countries, corruption isn't like that big of a deal because capitalism is a form of corruption. It's a form of organized greed. Greed is rewarded. It's incentivized. If you can exploit and take from those who do all the work and pocket the money, you're just considered a very successful business person. So the way corruption is dealt with here is so, so different. I mean, you look at the U.S. Congress, the 435 members of the House of Representatives spend the lion's share of their time doing fundraising. So they're getting money from corporations. That's called lobbying. You know, it's not corruption, but of course it's corruption. Anyway, very, very important. And I think that, you know, if a government is viewed as truly corrupt, especially a government that has a socialist or a communist party in its leadership, ultimately it will be the fatal undoing of that party and its standing and credibility with the masses of people. So the statistics you cited are super significant. Tings, I want to talk to you just as we sort of move a little bit towards the end here. What's the importance of the Communist Party Congress? It happens every five years. What are its chief decisions that it has to make? And how does it fit into Chinese governance? Because there are other important centers of institutional power like the National People's Congress. Just real briefly, what's the importance of this Congress? Okay, great. I mean, I think the CPC National Congress is one of the obviously most important events happening only twice a decade. And we're looking at a, a party that is the largest governing party in the world. The CPC has 96 million people, you know. It's a number that's quite astounding. And if it were to be a country, the CPC would be the 16th most populous country. So imagine this is a massive shift to steer. So this kind of event not only dictates the future of where this party is going, but also the country and of course, and impacts the world. And I think one of the things I want to highlight is that, you know, China, we've been talking a lot about this report, which is the key kind of message or the key sort of key organizing part of the Congress 
is that China is a really highly consultative and collective culture. And this translates actually into the political culture as much as she is the one that delivers the speech. So to get a sense of sort of what is the preparation, the national preparation for a Congress like this, both in selecting the delegates who go and also in the drafting of that report, it's a process that starts well over a year before. And you have many research groups going to the base from the grassroots all the way up to investigate certain areas of society, the most urgent questions of the time. And there's hundreds of meetings and probably, I don't know, upwards of three, 4,000 people that are involved in not only drafting, being consulted, offering amendments into this report that gets presented in this level. Uh, this includes not only party members, but also non-party members, people part of the civil society or the other non-governing parties that exist in China, and there are eight in total. And then the other aspect, I think, is also how the candidates are selected. There's nearly 2,300 members attending this one. And over a process of a year, there is what's called electoral units. And I think this is part of maybe the Chinese governance system that many people don't know about. There's actually many forms of sort of electoral politics, but it's in a different form than what we're used to in a liberal electoral democracy. And that process entails, you know, nominations of candidates, reviews of candidates, there's public announcements of candidates, there's shortlisting, there's voting that happens in an electoral unit. And based on a, a variety of requirements, that allow for a broad-based representation. You know, for example, if one of the autonomous regions are electing their candidates, they have their own set in terms of who is being represented and who will be going. And that's just to say that there's a, a large kind of collective process that makes this event that happens every five years a key, key part of kind of bringing unity, consolidating the party, but also getting consensus on what should happen next. And on the question of sort of how this fits into the larger political structure of China, I mean, I don't really have enough time to go into here, but luckily, Dongsheng is actually just going to put out a short explainer on the Chinese political system either tomorrow or the next day. So keep an eye out on that. We're trying to kind of demystify a little bit of this question of, you know, sort of where does the party begin and where does the state end, you know, and also some of the aspects of, you know, direct elections that happens at the grassroots levels, at the people's assemblies and how the people's assemblies build up to the national people's assembly and all of that. So stay tuned for that. It'll come out in the next couple of days. All right, let's just talk about that. So the Dongsheng News Collective, again, Dongsheng News Collective, you have a newsletter, you have multiple newsletters. I really encourage people who, you know, you're publishing multiple languages, but for our English language audience, you can get news from Dongsheng News Collective every week by subscribing to the newsletters. Real quick, how can people do that? Sure. You can follow us on all the social media platforms at Dongsheng News or go to our website at dongshangnews.org. And we have our material available in English, Portuguese, and Spanish. All right, great. And Tings, I also want to emphasize to people, buy your book. Or are you selling your book or can they get no, it for I'm free? No, I'm a communist. No, you can download it on the tricontinental.org. Okay, you have socialist <laughs> prices. It's free, everybody. It's called Serve the People. The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Tings Chak, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Breakthrough. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 